Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnow. On today's episode, Sean and I talk to visual artist Megan Moriarty about what grad school does to an art practice, what starting your career alongside a pandemic is like, and why we think dating is particularly difficult for creatives. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm an avid listener. You are the first person so far. This The show will have been out for, um, you know, a couple of months by the time this interview comes out. But you are the first person officially in real time to describe themselves as an avid listener. So thank you. Yes, it's very proud. <laughs> Fan of the show. Friend, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. You have kind of, just knowing sort of your background, you have a a more winding path to post-MFA life than most people that that I know. Yeah. So I am an interdisciplinary artist. Um, My primary background is in sculpture and um, took me a long time to get there. I've been in school for a long time, but I make sculpture and I take photos and... um, it's a lot of conceptual work, but I had the pleasure of graduating with my MFA in December of 2019 and then entering the job market January 2020 and turning to people and going, is there a recession happening? No one's hiring. I need to pay my student loans. And then the world shutting down and trying to figure out what the fuck to do. So now I um, left San Francisco and I'm at my family farm outside Rochester, Minnesota, which is, you know, smack dab middle of the world. So how many Rochesters are there? Four in the U.S. Oh God. Okay. Um, I, I describe the Rochester that I grew up near as the number two Rochester <laughs> in the U.S. There's beautiful Rochester, New York. Right. And um, then there's Rochester, Minnesota, which is where the uh, Mayo Clinic is. So um, it's a really high-end research hospital. And um, it's also, for a long time, there was a really big IBM plant here. So, like, the barcode was invented in my hometown. That's a cool fact. Real fun fact. So, yeah, if there is a vaccine, I'm probably in the area where I'll get it first. So... I've got that positive spin on my life right now. That's good. You know, that is a silver lining if there ever was one. And I'm really excited for the hate mail from everyone from, <laughs> sec- from according to you, third and fourth Rochester to roll in. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't even know where they are. I think one's Wyoming, but God bless. I mean, it's hard to follow up Rochester, New York. I accidentally followed someone on Instagram that was from Rochester, New York, and I thought they were from my hometown. And it, like all of a sudden the photos were really beautiful. And I was like, that's not here. <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse what is me? this? <laughs> so I have a real like Instagram influencer view of Rochester, New York. Yep. It's, I think it's the same weather. I think we're like the same place on the equator too. So it's, it's a real rivalry. Right. I mean, to be fair to you, as, as a Californian who has lived back East, I still, you know, I've, I've been back here in California long enough that I just have decided that the entirety of of the country past the Rocky mountains has exactly the same climate. It's all just, it's all just the same. <laughs> it's hot in the summer and it's terrible in the winter. And then, uh, you have, a, you have two other seasons. Yeah. As far as like enjoyable goes, it's not, <laughs> um, it's not here either right now though. So I know. Um, well, I moved out of San Francisco the week that the fire started. Good timing. Like it was super weird. Like there was the lightning, it was the white lightning complex. And I remember driving through with my mom explaining the way that everything worked because she hadn't driven through Northern California since the 1970s. And oh, you thought you could get away with a solid like sk- scoot out of 2020? Nope, it's just going to get worse. So having graduated in December of 2019, what was already becoming a recession, right? In this industry that you and I are both part of where that was already eating itself and had been for 15 or 20 years at that point. Um, and you, you graduate with a with a focus in spatial arts and 
So first, do you describe yourself as a sculptor usually? Like, is that where you lead? Because your work kind of, that's how I think about it because that's how it's been, how I was able to sort of compartmentalize it, right? But for listeners who aren't familiar with your work, it it there's a big basis in sculpture and in like three-dimensional object, but there's also photography and there's also like pulling in of like science and of um, of optics and that sort of thing. So I'm curious to hear you talk about like, that level of identification especially now yeah so like I like it's funny that we talked about where I'm from because um it it really plays into how I view creative research so much of what I do is from the perspective of like I'm in a lab and I'm working on something physical and when I take photos of something it's about exposing the unseen and elevating it and so while I describe myself professionally as a sculptor when I get into like circles where I kind of have to push my credentials and be like oh yes I, I am a sculptor I know how to do all these things I'm trained in every traditional craft of sculpture um, my work as it plays out is interdisciplinary I mean one of the things I really loved about my spatial degree is that it opened it up for me I got to say like a projection takes up space a photo can take up space and all of my photos are also photos of physical objects I make in a sculpture setting. So I think that element comes into play quite a bit. So yeah, in conclusion, I would say that I am a trained sculptor who makes interdisciplinary artwork. It's usually how I introduce myself. And and that tumbles into the issue of deciding genres and stuff anyway. No, nobody, especially now, nobody is just a photographer. Nobody's... Well, I've, I know some people who claim that they are just painters, but they, you know, they're don't lying. only work. You're right. They're lying. <laughs> they do other things, too. Um, are painters like the horse girls of the art world? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank uh, you. That is a controversial but not wrong question to ask. I I have a lot of friends who are horse girls and also painters. Um, <laughs> I have known many as well. I don't think about that, but, but it's I, true. I also oh, know no. like punk rock girls who are painters or like punk rock guys. I've known a lot of people who are painters that aren't necessarily into animals um, in general, but there is a segment of the painting world that I would say is exclusively horse girls. Right. I think, I think that's accurate. You can interpret that however you want. (laughs) Well, it's, it's the same way that, so I, as like a, a woman working in sculpture, there is a macho-ness in sculpture that I don't necessarily, I don't subscribe to it, but I have to play into it when I get into those environments to prove that they don't need to tell me what to do, which is a super fun thing about being a lady sculptor. Could you describe for the uninitiated what that macho-ness kind of manifests itself in? Yeah, I the best way I can describe it is a crazy uncle who lives in the woods and has built his own cabin and everything that goes in the cabin, that personality is in the sculpture studio at all times. Oh. Okay. And some t- and it, I say that as someone who has loved people like that. Right. I have a deep love for it and in some ways I'm like that cuz I grew up on a farm, but it can get in the way where they mansplain things to you you know I've I've met new incoming MFA students who take years to give any of my opinions any credit because they don't care about what I do they don't think I've made anything ever that is in line with what they do and so that's another reason I chose San Jose State was because all of the sculpture faculty except like two people were women where I got my undergrad, I, every time I wanted to use the table saw, I got lectured on table saw safety. And you're like, hello, I've been using this for years, please. Yeah. Yeah. They also, you know, there's some other things happening there, but like, yeah, pretty much. I've always felt like sculpture to some extent has, it's like the one art practice that manly men can do if they are really insecure about their masculine identity or they they feel the need to to prove it like unlike some other arts and they're those guys end up in every genre of course but oh yeah they're spread evenly i think right but maybe they are more immediately recognizable in sculpture because what they do is so easily defined as very manly very masculine 
Yeah, they make physical things that take up space in the world, and that's masculine, apparently. Um, My art can kill people. <laughs> like, literally. <Yeah. laughs> or, like, I could die making this art. And really, like, you could die making any art. Like, you could be a painter in a closed-off room with no ventilation and die that way. There, I think there's also, there is a lot of fear in using dangerous tools. And so when when you teach shop safety, you have to be really... You have to teach how to be strong and independent, but also mindful of the danger. And when I teach women in shop, I teach them, I usually end up teaching them a little bit differently because, um, you know, women are told not to do things themselves, to go out into the world and like find a guy who can fix the house for you, who can like use a power tool. And um, really the tools that are used in sculpture are similar to things like sewing machines. And so you really, it's about being like, you know how to do this. You just have to be a little bit more mindful. It's the same thing though. Right. It, it's finding that in for people who don't necessarily think that they have it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Finding an in where there didn't used to be an in. Um, you touched on something, Megan, that I'm super curious about because I didn't go to school for fine art. And Mason, you can talk about it, I'm sure, quite a bit, was other MFAs, kind of other your peers' perception of your work. Because I come from the classical music world where you can kind of tell in about two minutes, okay, this person can actually play or not. Um, But it's harder to kind of codify and like say concisely, this art is good and or bad and or they have skill. So can you kind of talk about perceiving one another maybe? I mean, no one goes to art school because they're a good artist. I mean, you don't. Like you go to (laughs) art school because like you have, you have no other choice, like it's this or die. And so you go to art school. And so everyone enters art school. And like, I had a little bit more training, but for the most part, everyone enters with ideas and trying to make those ideas real and justify the choices in those ideas. And so in the art world, it's much more like, okay, you made this thing. Can you justify to me why you made it and why it exists now? Like, that's the argument. And then the whole idea of craft plays in. Some people enter art school and they have a really honed and defined craft. I'm terrible at craft. Like, I want to do it the fastest, easiest way. So um, usually it looks like some kind of ramshack, like hut in the woods. Um, that's not going to help you get through winter. But um, yeah, I would say it's really, it's a crapshoot. Like, it's, people could come in and they're terrible and they come out and they're like, you are wildly jealous of them. People could come in to art school and they're really good and they they leave and they're terrible. Some people come in and they've got really great ideas, but no skill. And so the whole thing is you trying to be like, here are the tools to get your great idea going. I mean, there's somebody that we follow, like we as a cohort, Mason, you know, this person that we follow who we love their ideas on Instagram, but we just wish that he knew how to talk about them. Yeah. And I would say that that is more often than not what the conversation comes down to. Um, Mm. And especially when you reach the grad level, ideally, you're not talking about what is good and bad art, although that comes up because there are things that are genuinely terrible in the world. Right. But 98 percent of the time, the conversation is what is your idea and how are you executing it? Right. That That's what it comes down to and i think i think everybody comes into grad school with some set of good ideas or interesting ideas would be a better way to put that and they have varying levels of skill and then you either leave having honed those ideas or scrapped them and come up with better ones or you don't develop at all and you just continue being kind of whatever you were to begin with and i think that is the the most accurate measurement of your skill right yeah i would agree yeah yeah and and that's usually how we talk about it too. Like one, are you talking about your ideas, right? Do you have any or are you just painting naked women to paint naked women? And two, how have how has your ability to talk about those ideas developed and evolved over your time and and at the end of it have you clearly learned from that? Yeah. I mean, I agree with all of that. I also think um that they don't let you in the door if you don't have good ideas like the the ultimate barrier to entry to art school is not how good you are at something it's can you talk about your idea and if someone challenges you on your idea can you take that feedback and it's not even 
I would, I'd say it's not even always, can you talk about it, but will you talk about it? Yeah. Right? Cause there are a lot of people who can't talk about it, but are totally willing to try. And, and I'd say that, especially when you're trying to get into grad school, that goes a long way, but then you have that subset of people that cannot talk about their ideas and, or have absolutely no interest in it. And that's really the problematic crowd. Yeah, I remember being in in a critique once and somebody was there, they were a painter and we were talking about their paintings and they kept talking about how they wanted to be a filmmaker. And I finally was like, be, what, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> why aren't you a film major? Yeah. Your paintings are fine, but like, why the hell are you here if you want to make a time-based media that's not painting? Did they have a response to that? No. <laughs> I mean, as somebody that went to film school, I understand that they didn't have a response, but like they they shouldn't have been in art school. They shouldn't have been painting. They shouldn't have been painting. Yeah. No, you can make weird art films that are like have painting ideas. And you can make paintings that have, you know, film aspects, but like pick a lane or don't and lean into both of them fully, but don't it's like triple scenario art. Yeah, but but don't go through a painting program and say, I want to be a filmmaker. That's it not, doesn't work. No. It doesn't work. So what was your kind of journey of discovery from A, I'd like to do art and A, I'd like to do sculpture to I'd like to do interdisciplinary art, if you can kind of define that at all or if it just kind of happens? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I had a choice. I I was a kid with a learning disability, so everyone learned to read like three years before me. And so I, and most of the kids that I know that had dyslexia, um, like I do, we all ended up in a visual medium of some kind because you learn the visual world much faster because it's a completely different thing. And so by the time I got to like, oh, what do you want to do with with your life? It was like, well, fuck anything that has to do with math, science, or reading. Like, what does that leave you with? It leaves you with visual culture stuff. And I went through, I went to Catholic school. And so there was like, anytime there would have been an art class, it was replaced with religion class. I mean, which is, I learned so much about how to talk about abstract ideas through those classes in a way that I know that other kids didn't. So I had a good vocabulary for philosophy and abstract ideas. And I knew I wanted to go visual culture. So I went to several colleges. I did a lot of like, one semester stints in colleges. I went to an all girls Catholic college. I went to a community college, um, dropped out, like stopped going to the community college because I was so wildly depressed. And um, I think that's when I realized I needed to go into the arts. So I went to the closest art school that I could get into, which was a state, uh, Mankato State University or Minnesota State University, Mankato, however, which was a like, a wildly wonderful art program. And it was the first time I ever interacted with artists. Um, and under, like, it was the first time I got like a real drawing class. Um, and I was required to take a sculpture class and I had a lot of fun with it, but I also wanted to go to film school. So then I went to a different community college. I went to film school and did okay. And, uh, but the whole time I was there, I was making sculptures (laughs) and like, they were like wildly terrible sculptures. And I would go work on film sets and I would want to be in the art department of the film set. So then I went back to art school and that's like how I got into sculpture. And the rest is me trying to marry my ideas of film and photography with sculpture. So every kind of piece of your journey along the way kind of helped contribute to kind of what your art came to be today, though. Yeah, I, it's it was definitely a... Um, you can only connect connect the dots looking back. There was no clear. Yep. Yeah, nope. Uh, yeah. That's how I got here. That's how I think everybody's path ends up being though, is like you, you look backward and you go, Oh, of course I'm doing this work because I had this experience as a child and I had this experience, uh, as a teenager and I had, you know, on and on and on. Um, which, you know, is, is the hardest thing to talk to, um, people who are thinking about art school is that like, it's going to suck and it's going to suck the entire time. But at the other end of it, you're going to go, Oh, I learned a lot about myself through all of that sucking. And, um, yeah, it, it created this practice. 
I'm curious um, how having that, particularly like the religious aspects of your um, early education, how that might affect um, sort of pursuing liberal arts. And if, if you see, because, because you say that like it has influenced your, or, or it taught you early on how to think um, conceptually about a lot of things. I'm curious about like what ways that does and doesn't show up in, in your practice. Well, my practice is all about, it's, it plays a huge role in my practice, first of all, but um, the work that I make is all about how we as humans, when we enter a phase of development as a society, when we don't understand what's happening, like when we don't have scientific labels for what's going on in the world, we replace them with spiritual labels and philosophical labels. So like alchemy, if you go back and you do the research of like how alchemy happened, it's, you know, everything we know about chemistry is based in alchemy. But back then, they interwove it with Christianity and weird higher power God stuff. And they just kind of like blended it all together. And they're like, this will explain it. And looking back, you're like, this is a really fucked up code for just like general chemistry, but that they didn't know how to talk about it. And like, they were also dealing with a system where like everything had to be under the roof of like there's a Jesus and he defines everything um so that there's like a really exciting way of thinking that happens when you're in those restrictions and when i got into contemporary art i really honed in on what abstract art was and abstract art emerges when the east opens up to the west and all of a sudden painters aren't beholden to a religion as their primary um, source of income. So all of a sudden when shipping and trading happens in the West, people can make stuff for non-religious folk in a way that they couldn't before. You start getting these really interesting ideas about philosophy interjecting themselves into what is art and how do we interpret this world and maybe that this world is non-physical in a way that we haven't thought about before. And that's how you get like Helma of Clint. And that's how you got Wassily Kandinsky. Like that's what they were thinking about. And so my ability to kind of know how religious thought works makes it easier to think about how abstract art works and how we develop from there. Right. And all of contemporary art is based in secular art as much as it's based in like the entire history of, of at least Western religious art. Yeah. And like going through Catholic school made art history a lot easier. I took Latin. And so I could like figure out a lot of art history from Latin class in a way that I would not have as a dyslexic person. Like it would have been real tough. Totally. I, I, I didn't even think about that. You know, like I think, Oh yeah. All of European painting is influenced by pre-16th century, you know, religious art. But then um, I forget how much Latin there is. And nobody nobody who, do, who does not go to a Catholic school learns Latin before high school if they're really overachievers, right? <laughs> I never had the option to take Latin. So It was, it was do you want to take Spanish, French, or Latin? And... Um... I already knew that I was terrible at Spanish and I knew that that would carry on into French because both of those, you have to exist in the real world, but Latin's a dead language. And so like, it's really just fun and games. (laughs) (laughs) Can you really correct somebody on their pronunciation if, um, if no one else speaks it? Yeah. And if you understand how, um, so like I had to go to summer school for reading every year until I was in high school. And if you understand how words are broken up and thought through in their development, like it makes thinking through how um, other languages are put together. So it made guessing names of paintings really great. Like, oh, there's like a, a mother and child. Oh, it's Madonna and child. Okay, great. That's easy. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of notes on my tests, like close enough. Like <laughs> <laughs> Almost there. They had a rule that in my... Um, art history program in undergrad that if as long as you only had like four spelling mistakes you could get it (laughs) (laughs) 
every art history class that I've ever taken has had something like that, right? Yeah, because you know, like if you are within a country mile, okay, yeah, yeah, it counts. Like I know that you know it. You're not getting your doctorate yet, Um, (laughs) and even then, you know, we're we're making it all up as we go along, anyway. So someone will edit it. They'll figure it. Right, that's what editors are for. Music history is not like that. That's upsetting. That's very upsetting. It's like, mm, sorry, the opus number you put down was wrong. Zero credit. <laughs> it all sounds the same. Everything Haydn wrote sounds the same. Please leave me alone. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what it gets. What happens is um, in art history, there's so many religious paintings up until like the Renaissance. It's just a wild right. amount of his, like, so you need to know like, oh, this person was great at shadows. Like, that's how you know. Right. This is the first person to paint a baby that didn't look like a small man. Oh, that's my favorite. Yeah. 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 Or like, this person's got a full body (laughs) and they've been fully modeled. They're not just like a stick figure. Right. Right. Every person in this painting is not somehow in three quarters profile, right? Yep. Their face only. And then you always, I could, you could always figure out where it was located for me because if there was any Islamic influence, then you could be like, oh, it's from the Mediterranean. So it's Italy (laughs) or Southern Spain. (laughs) Oh, another Florentine. All right. Yep. Yep. Other cultures. Look at all those patterns they stole from uh, Constantinople. All right. Look at those ideas. I see some woodwork in there. What? (laughs) This person talked to somebody on, uh, on the spice trade. Okay. Yeah, or if they just look like some creepy, like been like once again been in the dark woods for a long time, you knew that it was Northern Europe. You like knew that like if they had a weird, like thin body with like fat distributed in weird places, you're like that's Northern Europe. Usually, a bunch of people lancing each other with totally flat faces and yeah, and like really scary animals everywhere. Right, right. If this book is illuminated by knights fighting gigantic snails, you know, you know. You know. Oh, this is northern Europe and not in one of the good years. <laughs> yeah, this was a tough one. Or like right. and then you know you know it's during the plague because there's always like just 12 skeletons just like in the corner. <laughs> just doing the Grateful Dead dance. They're either through. dancing or they're just piled. They right. just are yeah. like, there's the dead people. It's, it's really <laughs> tough right now. And that's art history. That's yeah. all it is, kids. It's not oh. scary. It's it's about like everything else in art, it's about figuring out what you can get away with. That's probably my favorite rite of passage is a bunch of people who went into a field of a visual language trying to memorize history through titles of things like it's just like it's terrible for everyone and then the kids it's not terrible for they're not artists those are the historians <laughs> but it's true it's it's this um totally sort of leveling of the playing field for everybody no matter how hot you think you are you get into a, a pre-renaissance european art history class and you're like oh shit i don't i don't know anything but then you come out of it and you're like, oh, I have all these things that I can apply to my practice. I don't remember anybody's name, but if I see that one, I'm going to know. Yeah. Or like on Animal Crossing when the pirate shows up and right. like <laughs> the pirate shows up and he's got all these paintings. You're supposed to be able to tell which one's real. And I, it's so easy for me to Google those artists because I know all the styles they're from. Like Winged Victory showed up today, which I obviously bought it from the pirate. But I was like, it looks good. Winged Victory, confirmed. This is how it looks on Animal Crossing. (laughs) So we've been talking a lot, Sean and I, about like the differences in sort of pedagogy and art and and how different different art practices and different methods of creating art where where you sort of exist in it. The the ways of teaching it overlap and and how they differentiate. But I think the an additional layer to that is just that every artist has a completely different way of thinking about how anyone should learn about art. And to some extent, we all believe that we have the better way of doing it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my way is the best way, obviously. Right. Second only to mine. Um, Maybe we'll see. <laughs> we'll we, see what the students say in 30 years. Right. <laughs> we both know people who are way better than we'll ever be. Um <laughs> But I'm curious, I'd like to hear you talk about like um, your approach to, especially as somebody who has 
so who who has their hand in so many different pies, right? Of of not just even thinking about yourself as exclusively a sculptural artist. What how you think about sort of teaching people about art and 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 your approach to that and and um how that affects you know how much you talk about theory and how much you talk about practice. Yeah, I think what's one of the funniest things about being a professional teacher is that you have to be able to exclusively teach one subject. So like I know how to exclusively teach sculpture and exclusively teach painting and they're completely different things. And when I teach them, they don't overlap. If they overlap, it's like, how do you paint the sculpture Um, (laughs) and why you shouldn't use nice painting materials to paint it. Um, like painting and sculpture is so much like, oh, this is how you spray paint. Um, but I like when I teach something, it's always from the point of view of where I entered art, which is I know nothing, but everything's accessible and doable. So when I, I teach every, every art class I teach is like teaching shop to high school students. It's, these are the tools you, if you don't know how to use them now, you'll know how to use them within the next two hours. And every class is like building on, like, we learned these tools last week. Here's how you use them this week. And here's how we're going to build on those skills. Um, I also am, I really love art history. I don't talk about art history in my practical craft classes. It's not helpful. It just makes me look smarter than I am. And I don't want that barrier between me and my students. I also make a point to only teach tools that you can get every day from anywhere. Um, real specialty tools are just beyond luxury. And if you have access to it, that's great. But like maker spaces open and close every day and it's impossible to get in to use them for a prolonged period of time. So you can't really rely on that. So I teach things like you should always have a box cutter and cardboard nearby in painting, like start with acrylic, move up into nice things if like you really fall in love with the color it's worth it but otherwise it's not worth it like you're at the beginning when I talk to advanced students it's so much about the idea and whether the material is right for that idea and then you teach how to use that material it's not I mean some sculpture classes it's like you're going to learn this material and you're going to like it and if you don't like it I'm sorry but this is what we're doing for the next three weeks right you need to have this uh, knowledge for some reason. Yeah. I had a, like, I had a sculptor friend who would teach skills and drills where like, he would just give you a block of wood and then be like, okay, so we're, you're just going to drill holes into this wood. And then you're going to drill some nails and some screws. And we're just, you're just going to see how it works. And so much of sculpture is like, we're just going to see if it works. Yeah. Nobody's good at sculpture for the first like four years that they're doing it. I don't think anybody's good at any art practice for the first four years that they're doing it. But, like, sculpture takes up space in a way that, like, you can't ignore it. Right. <laughs> like, I, like I, one thing I always teach is to take a photo. Like, I teach how to, in, in sculpture, I teach how to take a professional photo of an object. That's part of it. And then we do a ritual of goodbye. And then we walk all of our stuff to the dumpster. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, if you really love it, keep it. Right. But, like, you've got documentation that you can do the thing. And you can use it in your portfolio and you don't need to have this sitting in your living room. Which is horrifying to me. We talked a little bit earlier about like who is attracted to what art practice. And, and um, as I've said before, and we'll say probably until I die, photographers are almost universally hoarders, like at our core. We all have that sort of, in our own ways, but a lot of us blatantly are just people who cannot let go of anything. And so the idea of like, you know, I made this thing and we're going to go put it out in the dumpsters. Just a horrifying thing that I would never ask a student to do unless I led with this is disposable, right? <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not one, once it's created, it's there forever, not because it's important or good or should exist in the first place, but because it should stay around to remind me of my own personal shame, maybe. Well, and what's funny about that is that I, do photography so I've got that hoarder in me also but not about sculptures about the photos of the sculptures and so like 
and I also know that my students have hoarders in their lives. So like when, before we throw things out and like, make sure your mom doesn't want it, take a photo, send it to your mom. Um, always check with mom. Always check with mom, dad, grandma. Um, <laughs> my parents have so many of my like test bronzes around the house. I'm just like, oh God, that was, I should have melted that down. Okay. And that's the other thing is that like, when you get into certain materials, they're so expensive that like, it makes sense to melt them down and start over especially bronze, gold, silver, any kind of metalsmithing. Um, painters do all the time with canvases. They just paint over their canvas. Um, right. Photographers print tests and then we can't do anything else with it. And so eventually you come up with like a, I don't know, like a collage practice maybe, or you start making books out of used materials. But there's, there's like in my studio at San Jose, I have a box underneath my desk that is just full of old shit that I can't use because it's test prints and it's four by sixes and it's old negatives that are not salvageable, but I can't get rid of them because I might need them. Well, some of my practice is like making those glass slide negatives or glass um, positives. And those, I'm so grateful that they're small because that's a hoarding situation. Like, because they're images, because they're fragile, I mean, I was able to bring them with me in my tiny Mini mini Cooper to Minnesota. But, like, if they were any larger, there would have been, like, a crying situation of me in my studio while I was cleaning and being like, goodbye, I'm putting you in storage. Um, But luckily, I didn't have to do that. Uh, And I brought them with me. But I get it. I've got so many hard drives, just, like, endless hard drives of digital photos. That's my entire art practice. Um, <laughs> that and collection. chairs. That and chairs, yeah. <laughs> that is sort of, well, no. Now I have a page dedicated to that on my website. It's a growing project. But for a long time, the chairs aspect was very much a secret. I I think the chairs aspect is wildly beautiful. Um, but that's from me thinking about objects too much. I am curious, though. You say, because you said, like, when you teach sculpture, it's it's very much, like, practices based and it's very practical knowledge um i like my approach to teaching is very much not that like it's it is very theory focused and and that a big part of that is who i am but i also think that that is just part of the medium as well right like is there some aspect of sculpture that it is just so overwhelmingly practical that it can exist solely in the practical sphere beforehand yes and no i think less people are taught how to just use tools and they used to be like shop classes don't necessarily exist anymore in high schools. People live in cities. They don't have access to building stuff. Um, but, and you keep a phone, like a camera in your pocket now. Like, so I think that it's so wildly important to teach the theory of photography because we're all taking photos now. Right. We're not all building three dimensional structures. Yeah. Yeah. And also like when you take a photo, you might, you're not going to like maybe saw off your hand. Well, (laughs) no, you're right. Yeah. (laughs) And so like really talking about the theory happens during the critique and it's just such an accomplishment to get something finished. I I think that that is kind of lost in as as we move away from darkroom stuff. Maybe that, maybe that is the sort of parallel there is that as I'm thinking about it, like when you are learning film photography, because you have to as like your foundation a lot of it is that and a lot of it is if you do this wrong you will seriously injure yourself and others right yeah and like i so i learned how to like edit 16 millimeter film on the old turntable i call them turntables um but like if you fuck that up like you're not going to have a project um in a way that like that doesn't that problem doesn't exist for most filmmakers anymore Um, or like film students, I should say. Um, But yeah, if, I mean, it's like teaching those practical skills are such an important part of the, at the beginning of the process in a way that they're not as important at the end. So at the end, that's when we get to talk about theory so that you can move forward and have that theory in your brain. I also like in all my classes, I, all my, all my projects are like really goofy and like whimsical themed. So like, because I know I can't talk too much about theory, people take more risks when they're super comfortable. So when if I make it goofy and fun, then they're more likely to make, be like, oh, what I make 
isn't as big of a deal. Like the content is not as big of a deal as long as I get it done. So I get a lot more really wild, fun stuff that way from my students instead of being like, today we're going to talk about abstract sculpture and shapes only. And you can only have the colors black and white. Like that's not going to help anybody. Do you think that comes out of your own approach to your own practice though? Like, you know, there is like this, and I, I don't mean this in, I, I mean this like because I love your work. There's like this level of almost whimsy to some of the stuff that you do. Like, like it is very much. Um, You've just suspend reality, I think, with my stuff. Yeah. And, and so much of the experience is the experience, right? It, it is the fact that this thing exists in this room and it's lit this way. And like, like I think about the show that you did a couple of years ago, that was um, where you used all the overhead projectors um, in the, in the gallery. And, and so much of that show was just about like moving through that space. Right. So like, do you think that that informs that sort of approach too? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, I think that also what informs that approach is that I'm, I grew up someplace where there's visual arts, not a thing. Musical arts is like the thing in Minnesota, like major bands come out of Minnesota, major musicians major visual artists not so much um and i think that i understand that's i i do that from the viewer perspective like you you might not be able to understand exactly what i'm doing but you can say like this looks like something found in nature like i i create access points in that way and i like i taught high school here and working with students whose goal is to go to an ivy league to be a doctor they don't care about art class so you have to talk about art in a different way you have to talk about like color as ratios you have to talk about sketchbooks as um research guides like it's just a different thing um but then you get to transition to people who really care about art and they're going to college to be artists and then you get to turn it on its head and so yeah i think i enter those classrooms being somebody that came from a place where like no one's really a professional artist and I know what that's like and I know what those brains, how those brains work. So might as well have fun. We'll have fun in my class, but we will also talk for hours about why Dada happened and who was right and who was wrong (laughs) because that's what I care about. I mean, like I've had friends, like I had a friend who I, who I love very deeply and he would show up, to his first day of classes when he we were so I have an MA and an MFA when I was getting my master's of arts um he was in my program with me and he would show up to the first day of all of his classes that he taught with an axe and he would drag the axe behind him and he would just yell obscenities (laughs) and then it would be like 8 a.m on a on a Monday morning and then he'd be like oh yeah I guess this is your first class in college isn't it and like (laughs) so much of of like art school is being like the world that you existed in is bullshit welcome to the new world that 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 is the through line like i think about you know teaching beginning classes in any at at a state school most of most of your students are not even art students they're most of my students were aerospace students right or engineers and there's something so deeply satisfying the first time you say fuck in the middle of a lecture because the all of the air leaves the room and then everybody goes oh you can do that we're adults yeah oh wow you know and and that is transformative and you you usually only get one email about it so it's okay (laughs) i used to when i was teaching um introductory classes that weren't sculpture and i didn't need to physically like i would leave the room for half an hour yeah just to and like i would come back and they'd be like where'd you go and I'd be like, I went to get coffee. I would just lie. Like, I was like, you need to learn that, like, I don't need to be here for you to get this work done. I'm here to talk to you. But if, like, the rules are suspended here, as long as you get your work done and, like, we have conversations about it, you can go to get coffee. You can go have lunch. Like, it's going to be fine. I, I was, I've always been amazed by how much of an uphill battle that is, right? Because even when I was an undergrad, if the teacher left, that was time to do whatever but like in the last couple of years of teaching like i go on break and i will actually go get coffee or i will leave and i'll go back to my studio and and 
get some stuff out of there and somebody will be in the studio and I'll talk to them about some bullshit. And then like I come back in and everybody's in exactly the same space that they were, you know, I don't want to sound like the old man, but like they're all on their phones or on their laptops. (laughs) And like, it seems like it's such a different experience um, than what I'm used to. But, but it, I, I wonder how much of it too is just like what you're saying too is, is that they're not used to the idea that, Oh, I'm in college. I can do that. I can get up and leave the classroom. Yeah. Like if you have a meeting with your advisor, go to that meeting. Like we'll figure this out. I'm not doing like there's there's the check-in, like everyone needs to be there at the beginning. And like if they need to leave for something, great, just let me know. We'll figure it out. But like, yeah, the, like so much of studio art class is students making stuff and the teacher just walking around and making sure that they're like working through things I had a I had a painting teacher in undergrad who he would schedule all of his graduate meetings during our painting class and like he just wouldn't be around in that way and like what I figured out was when he was in the room people kept asking him what they should do by by not being there people just did it they did whatever they wanted and they made more interesting stuff and they figured it out and and that really creates the opportunity to pull out the people that are are going to be self-sufficient in the ways that they'll succeed in whatever it is and the people who have no interest in it i mean you can't be an artist if you're looking to somebody else on how to do something you're just it's not going to work so much of what we do is self-directed and like we go to people for guidance but you don't like you can't be an artist in the world and think there's a path for you that like someone else has laid out before you (laughs) There, there is no path. There's no path. We're all in the woods. Like yeah. constant threat of starvation. That is terrifying and exhilarating to hear. Oh yeah, there's, there's no other like, there's no orchestra you can join. There's no like, you're just, you're like, you leave art school and you're like, oh fuck, like I'm back here in this place. I need to figure out how to survive. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, yeah. Nobody's gonna let me fill a room full of chairs anymore. What, no, what the I hell to, am I going to do with my life? I have to like take over a room. Like I have to become a secret agent in an organization. Right. I have to go find a room and talk <laughs> the owner into letting me fill it full of what? Chairs? Why Why are you doing this? At a low cost. At a low cost. <laughs> to both me and them. And here's how this is going to make money for your space. <laughs> and, and like sell it to them as a positive. Right. And do you know anybody who's accepting grant applications at the moment? Because I need to go buy a bunch of chairs. I didn't think that part out. I was going to, I was going to find them on the street and I haven't seen a chair in six months. Um, yeah, I, I mean, found one. It looks a little dangerous. Maybe all you need to do is just walk into anywhere in San Francisco and there's like 12 moving trucks. So that's true. Just walk onto a state. Don't actually do this. Walk into a state uh, school <laughs> campus. Any CSU has no small number of chairs that nobody's been keeping track of for the last 30 years. So you just like, you can find them. Don't steal them. They're state property, which means that also, well, that's tricky, right? Because we paid for them. That is my chair. It is your chair, but it's not your chair at the same time. But it's not my chair. Right. That's why you can really only take a photo. And then who owns that photo? That's another question. Uh, Well. Anyways. Mm. So how is COVID treating you? Happy and healthy. Um, what an exciting time in my life. <laughs> um, yeah, COVID. Well, I like, so I, first of all, I'm very fortunate that no one in my life has lost their life to COVID or got COVID. Um, I am currently residing in a part of our country where like the COVID number has reached containment level. So like, as long as you follow protocol, you're not going to get it. That said, I mean, like I had a life that was exciting and beautiful in in San Francisco, and I, it's like it got destroyed. So, I mean, I like I'm very much in grief for that life right now. Um. So, I I mean, I mean, I was with so I was with somebody for five years, and COVID happened, and like they just they couldn't handle it. Like it just wasn't it didn't work with their life. So, 
anything that was influenced by COVID, they couldn't handle and continue to not. I like, I talked to them still. They continue to not be able to deal with the reality of what's going on. Right. So. And so to add on top of that, like the. Reality. The reality. <laughs> right. All of reality. But All like of reality. the reality of like trying to start a career even before this, like there's going to be much written about um, how COVID ended the careers of so many people before they started. But for most of us, there wasn't a career to begin with. Right. And yeah. Like, and I like, I'm somebody I've, I've never in my life worked less than 80 hours a week. And I like that part's de- like that part's really devastating is that there, there was no level of preparation. There's nothing you could do. Right. There's no accomplishment you could have in your portfolio that would get you a job right now. And like I moved, when I moved back to Minnesota, like two weeks after I moved back, all the art studios closed that were left. Right. And like, it's, and I like went to the local art center. It's, they've been running off of events for like two decades and now they can't do events. And like that model's broken. And so like one of the really, I feel so grateful that I had, so I lived in Ireland for eight months. I had this really wonderful internship fellowship exchange um, with their public arts department. And the way that funding is set up in the EU is you get multiple year blocks of funding for the arts and it's funded through the state. And it's pretty clear that like, this is for the public good. And like, it's part of your rights is that you get to experience art in your everyday life. And that doesn't really exist here. Like everything here is a nonprofit and it's like, please, please support the arts. Like it's something everyone deserves in their everyday life. And everyone's like, but do they, Did they work hard enough to deserve art. As they consume music and media and all these things with just no awareness of it. We live in a visual culture. Like that's right. how it works. Um, so like seeing that, like I hope that we come out with a different understanding of how the arts work. I, you know, that's my hope for the future. I, I don't know if necessarily that will happen, but right. dreams. Also, if any single Irishmen are interested in getting a wife from America, I'm happy to marry you in a reverse immigration system. Like, the, like let's imagine it's 1850. <laughs> and just like my ancestor ordered a wife, you can order a wife back to Ireland. Like, it's been five generations. Like, we can do this. And finally, we have an episode that will play well with <laughs> Irish listeners. A, a demographic I'm a tall Irishman with a secure job. <laughs> a demographic we've been desperately looking to tap into. Um, I'll take it as well. well okay. <laughs> and if they have any sisters, um, <laughs> they like we're interested in a, ch- a chain migration situation <laughs> out of here. <laughs> I like, I've got, I don't care where you, I like all the parts of Ireland. I'll take anywhere. Like, it's fine. I'll take anywhere that isn't here at this point. <laughs> yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. Like I'm on, oh my gosh. So like, I haven't been on the dating scene in five years. And so I joined all the dating apps. I'm sorry. In pandemic. And oh my goodness. Pandemic <laughs> apps are like so tragic. And like, I'm in a place where like, there's like best of the best smart researcher people and then farmers they're both great but they are very different on the on the social media abilities (laughs) (laughs) dead animal gun those are two like if i see that i don't care if they have a truck but if there's a dead animal in the photo it's an automatic no and i don't think guys get that i don't think they understand that that's the thing something that's happening you don't you don't find the ability to kill other living creatures as a uh, no well, sensual also, trait. They're they're not cool fish. Like if you were holding like a cool fish, <laughs> if you'd caught a vampire squid, if, and, yeah. if you're like if it's like a swordfish, like oh you travel, but like, <laughs> like like if it's just a fish from one of the over ten thousand lakes in Minnesota, like cool you buy a lake also as an artist with a terminal degree in her field I like don't care if you own a house like (laughs) I have a lot of like there's a lot of people who are like net worth is this own my own house and I'm like 
is that a net worth in the house or like how does that money transfer to me like if we're talking about like things i'm interested in about you like how is that a personality trait i mean on the flip side of that like uh, so many um i have so many conversations with women that would start with like well what is your job do you own a home like really that that would be there I don't want to say that there are a lot of them, but there's not a small number of people who approach it in that way. And so I imagine that those guys have run into that and maybe they're part of a culture that that is. I love this. This is a twist. I don't, I don't hang out with those people. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like what we're seeing is that, you know, as in all parts of social media, there are people who are talking to exactly this other group of people. And here we are, as we so often are, as liberal artists coming in from the side, driving completely too fast and so crashing fast. into it and going, well, what the fuck's wrong with all of you? <laughs> <laughs> I own, I own neither a house nor a gun and I have no interest in either of them. So but let me tell, let me show you my photo collection. Right. Mm. Let me tell you my thoughts on guns. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of opinions. I can right. write you a paper on it. Here's why I think that, um, that real estate should be completely taken out of the the entire process of building wealth in the United States and in all the world over. I mean, um, that's that's something that you run into as an artist meeting people in general. I think it's so hard to date an artist because all we want to do is have opinions and go to each other's shows and then right. not see anyone for like six months. <laughs> right. And so like, how do you interact in a society that doesn't necessarily think that that's a real thing or romanticizes it so much that it's not, it's just ridiculous. Right. Cause the other aspect of that is that it is really difficult to date an artist. Um, oh yeah. Because, because there is that <laughs> level of narcissism that comes with it, with, that comes with the idea that like my ideas are not only good enough for me to make work about them, but um, other people need to see it. And then on top of that, we also don't believe in ourselves to some extent. So uh, we don't. We really don't. You find out after the fact, <laughs> right? Everybody needs to see this, but also no one should ever see it because I'm not worthy of it. But then also, like, I I don't know about you. I'm I'm curious about the two of you who who are part of very different. Well, make you to a lesser extent, but even still, like, for me as a photographer, all of my work is about the past, right? And um. And mine may be more actively than some other photographers, but I very actively make work about my own life and about people that I used to know and stuff. Um, And that comes with people who I've been romantically entangled with and serious relationships that I've had. And that has tanked relationships because I still have that work and I still like pull from that work. And, and it, and I'm very much in touch with the fact that it happened and I don't need to run away from it. So like I mean, I have a problem where they don't understand my work in any way. So like it's hard to invest in something you don't get. Right. And um because it's it's non-figurative, it's abstract, and it's about the unknown, like there's it's you you really have to be willing to jump into the ocean and just go with the flow. And in a way that like anyone who's a non-artist has trouble doing, I think. So, yeah, I mean, like, what's your experience, Sean? Mm, the first reaction that you tell them that you're a musician is, A, what do you play? And then, like, here is my contribution. I used to play the tuba in sixth grade. And you're like, okay, cool, great. And the next question is, do you like anime? I like anime. And my next answer is, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, I don't, like, I can't even imagine because like I failed out of band in junior high. Like I played the flute and I could really only play Christmas songs poorly. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I love classical music, but like as someone who's been like been romantically involved with musicians, like that's not what it is. We're the worst. I think we're just the worst, especially I'm surprised at how many musicians I meet that play in orchestra and their point of view and taste in music is just, in my mind, terrible. Or 
the better way to put it is they've never developed critical thought about it. And I think what I love hearing about this, the graduate world of, of fine art is that it's all about what you think and about how you conceive and kind of put it all together when there's a lot of really dumb musicians out there and they just, or, or a really staunch adherence and they can just to like playing the classics or playing the well explored stuff and just make a living and a really successful career off of that. I mean, there are a lot of really dumb artists who do exactly the same thing. Um, You also like, that's one of the interesting things about the training as a visual artist. It's like, you can't just make the things that came before you'll get laughed out of the room or you'll be stuck making portraits on the East coast till you die. Of rich women? Of rich women and their small children in sunrooms um or horses lots of paintings of horses still exist or dogs forever you know what yeah horse girls forever and there's like pet painting is a big thing yeah getting a professional like my sister sent me a thing on instagram she's like i wanted to get you an embroidered portrait of your cat but it was going to be nine hundred dollars and i was like (laughs) thank you for thinking of me but also like I don't need an embroidered portrait of my cat. Right. <laughs> of all the things that I could hang in my home. All the art that is mine and my friends, a person I, and I also think like as an artist, I collect my friend's work. Cause then I like, feel like I'm always with them and like, I have them with me and they're my comrades. But like, if I don't know you and like, I don't, I'm not a fan of your medium. Like, why would I own your work? That that has been one of the biggest things for me as as I've grown up and and gotten you know gone through college and gone through grad school and and gained this group of uh, friends who continue to practice art. You realize at some point that like there will always be artists that you come across and you really want to own something of theirs, um, you know. But you're not going to buy for for me for so many reasons. You're not going to buy a a print of a Dali, right? Like you, there's no reason to own one. Right. Um, and Does it show that you're a poser if you do, <laughs> or you're like, I'm just going to buy. No, it's just like, why would you, why would you need it? Right. You probably have a book. You probably have three books with that print in it somewhere. And, and it's, it just, when you know the person that made the art um, and when it is actually a piece of art of theirs, right. That they had a hand in, like there's, nothing really compares to that and you know and then coming out of that like you'll find artists that you will never meet but like you really like their work and and you know how important it is for somebody to purchase from you and so you buy a piece from them if you can i that's how i feel about art books like if there are artists that like i really love and they influence how i think about the world i get their book i don't necessarily get their print um in some most of the cases like there's no way i can afford any of their work Right. That's the other thing. I'm like, my life is such a nomadic situation that like all the art I own is in storage anyway. So like, I wouldn't even be able to look at it. One of my favorite things about our group is how small the work is that we all trade. Oh yeah. Right. We give each other the tiniest little pieces of, of work that we possibly can. And I think it's because we know that, that like at any moment, any of us could be uprooted and I want to make sure you keep this. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like the size of a playing card or like anything bigger is like questionable. Right. Right. I, I might make you a four by six if I'm feeling real generous, but like, and if I have a frame lying around. A frame because, makes a difference. And also yeah. um, it needs to like, so much of the way that we get each other's art is through gift giving or exchanging. Like it, so like it needs to be something that you can physically fit in your car or in your backpack because you're biking uh, or commuting. <laughs> and like, it needs to be something you can hand them. But even when I make sculpture, it's really small. Um, part of that is like, there's a lot of like reasons about like taking up space and like what it means to be a woman sculptor. Um, but I also like, don't think it needs to be large. Like just in general, it doesn't need to be. And like, I don't want to carry it around for the rest of my life. You can't store it. Like so much of when you apply for grants as a sculptor, is just like physically renting a space that's big enough to make what you want to make. And otherwise that, that work doesn't get made. 
anyone who's made big work, it's like, oh, who paid for that space for you to make that work? Who paid for you to ship that where it needed to be? So fun. Well, thank you for coming on today. Of course. And talking to us. Um, Where can people find you if they're looking for you? Oh, um, MeganMoriartyArt.com is my official website. Um, If you want to buy prints from me, I have some lovely prints for sale. And then um, you can also follow me on Instagram at MoriartyArt. And um, I'm not great at posting permanent things, but my live content is stellar. (laughs) I want to, I like, I wish I could give you my Twitter handle, but I don't tweet ever. It's mostly just me seeing what's going on in the world. But if you ever like want to follow me for the hope that someday I'll share something that's at the creative Meg. So that's me. That's how you get a hold of me. Thank you. Of course. I can, I think my mom's walking around yelling for me, so I should probably go. We'll, we'll let you go talk to your mom. But... She really, she really, my parents really like hanging out with me. Oh, <laughs> that is like, that is the silver lining is I get to hang out with my parents who like I've lived 2000 miles away from for the last five years. And so they're like, so what are you doing now? Can we hang out? Like, what are we doing tonight? What's for dinner? What should we make? This is unfamiliar territory. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Well, on this unnecessary boast, I'm going to hang up on you now. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy your wildfires. All right. We will. All right. I love you. I miss you. I wish I was there. Same to you. Oh, Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?